glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Um, one of the hymns, all of them uh, spoke to my heart, but one of them I want to read a phrase from 173, Be Still with My Soul. The second verse says, Be still, my soul, which is just a good thing to say to ourselves. Talk to our own soul. Be still, soul. And here's a reason why. Thy God, he's your God, he's not just the God, he's thy God, doth undertake, which means he's taking it under his auspices, under his uh, his plans, intents, and purposes. He doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. At work, when someone says, uh, you know, what's the status of this project? And somebody says, well, we're working on that. My reaction to that varies depending on the person who says that. We're working on that may mean I need to keep asking every day. I may need to try to find someone else to help on that project. Um, or somebody who's, you know, a consistent, dependable, reliable performer, they say we're working on that. I think, okay, we've got, you know, a 75 to 90% chance that this is going to come out the way we need it to. But friends, when we say, thy God doth undertake, there's never been anything he has undertaken that has not come to fruition. Which is one of the great flaws, if you'll pardon my uh, polemicism for just a moment here, one of the great flaws of the dispensational mode of approaching scripture. It says that God tried one thing and that didn't work, and so he tried another thing and that didn't work, and he tried another thing and that didn't work, and even the thing he's trying right now is not really what he intended to do, and so one of these days later on he's going to get around to actually fulfilling his purposes, and we sure hope that works out. But friends, the God of, the Almighty God revealed to us in Scripture is a God who speaks and it is done. He calls those things that be not as though they were. And he spoke this very universe into existence. Don't tell me that that God is undertaking something he's not going to accomplish. And he points us, the hymn writer here, she points us to the past. As we looked last night at the book of Esther, the past. And, and as the faithful Israelite families through all the ages would do with their children, when they recited the Psalms, when they uh, partook of their holy feasts, when they recounted their own experiences with God's dealings, they didn't stop there. They went back a generation and two generations and 50 generations to talk about the past, to remind their children and themselves, this is the God we serve. We serve a God who brought us out of bondage in Egypt. We serve a God who opened up the Red Sea. We serve a God who brought us across the River Jordan. We serve a God who sent the hornet before us and chased out our enemies and gave us the promised land. We serve a God who faithfully chastens us every time we turn astray. We serve a God who has promised to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of his purposes all around us and in us and for us, for his glory. We need to be speaking about the past, not because we're nostalgic and want to live in the past, but because we want to anchor our faith in the demonstrated reality that God is a God who fulfills his promise. Every promise of God in Christ is yea and amen. And therefore, we have great hope, not wishful thinking hope, 
but joyful, confident expectation about the future. Because thy God doth undertake to guide the future just like he has the past. Now, um, I owe two apologies to this congregation uh, for last night. First, um, a young person in the congregation who was paying very careful attention asked me in a most respectful way last night if Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman on his horse going through the streets of Shushan, would he really have let people bow down to him when Haman, when the roles were reversed and Haman had to lead him on a horse throughout the city? And so I went back and checked, and he didn't. There was no bowing down to Haman recorded. I embellished that. I was trying to uh, you know, help us visualize the circumstances of exactly what was happening and the thoughts and the feelings of the, the actors in this drama, this, this true story, to, to imagine how they might have felt so we could relate to it more. But uh, that was, uh, that's not what Mordecai did. He didn't go from refusing to bow down to somebody, someone to insisting everyone bow down to him. That did not happen. Secondly, and thank you for paying attention, by the way. And secondly, I owe an apology to Brother Brady because uh, I castigated him mercilessly last night for saying that I, I wasn't supposed to mention anyone's name in the pulpit, and he didn't actually say that. So um, we had an interesting conversation just a few minutes before coming into the service, and I asked him, I said, what are the guardrails? Tell me the boundaries. And he told me what time to finish, and I ignored that. And he, he told me, uh, and he told me a few other things, but the main guidance he gave me was, he said, he said, you can preach on anything that you can find between Genesis and Revelation. And the comment about mentioning the names of ministers in the pulpit was simply a, a side discussion and not an edict that I ignored. So uh, I'm sorry, Brother Brady, for, for uh, calling you out in that way. But uh, thank you for your good humor and patience. I want to go back to the book of Esther, at least to refer to it today, and consider some of the attributes that we see displayed in two of the less admired characters of this story. I want to look again at King Ahasuerus. Let's try that. Who has my weirus? Ahasuerus. Okay, just want to make sure you can pronounce it. So we're going to look at King Ahasuerus, and we're going to look at Haman, and we're going to see some of the qualities that they display uh, by way of negative instruction. Uh, you know, sometimes, well, it's very important to say what is true. Sometimes it's also important to say very clearly what is not true. And sometimes by seeing a very clear example of what something is not, it helps us to understand what is or what should be. So in Proverbs chapter 29, I want to read a few verses. Proverbs 29, verses 17 through 23. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. A servant will not be corrected by words, for though he understand, he will not answer. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than of him. I think we can see clearly in both of these characters a tendency to being hasty in their words. I mean, when you're a king and you have a magic ring that as soon as you stamp it on something, it becomes the law of the land, please don't take that ring off your finger. 
Please don't hand it to whoever has uh, won your favor of the moment to say, go ahead and make whatever law you want to make. He did that with Haman, and then he did it again with Esther and Mordecai, and thankfully that one turned out a little bit better. But still, this was a king who, who was, was hasty and, and, and prone to, to outbursts of rage and intemperateness and didn't carefully consider his words and his actions before they flowed from him. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at length. This is the opposite of someone who's hasty or rash in their words. This is someone who is gentle and tender. And he says, like maybe Abraham, you know, looking for, anticipating the promised seed that was so long in coming. And, and he, but he treated his servant, Eleazar, with such grace and 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 trust and, and respect and dignity that Eleazar really became like a son to him even before Ishmael and Isaac came on the scene. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at length. An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Only by pride cometh contention. That's uh, my, my, one of my fathers in the ministry, uh, Elder Stephen Bloyd. Uh, that was a, a hallmark of his. That uh, you know, there's so much controversy, dissension, arguments, and and people. Uh, it could be within a family, within a church, among churches, in our land, and 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 he was quick to point out, only by pride cometh contention. Somewhere at the root of this contention is pride. It's a fact. Because only by pride cometh contention. And so uh, when we look into the, the contest, the contention that were happening in the book of Esther, we certainly see pride at the root of these contentions. We, we see pride on vivid display in the character of Haman, who was all about ambition and self-promotion and stepping on anyone he had to to get what he wanted. But we also see a different sort of pride in Ahasuerus. The pride of arrogant presumption. He already had everything. He didn't have to be ambitious. I guess he could have gone and conquered more, more nations, but, you know, why bother? When you've got 127 provinces all the way from India to Ethiopia, you know, it's, it's uh, time to rest on your laurels. So he was not ambitious in the same way that Haman was, but he was a proud man. He was a man that was rash and hasty because his assumption was that he was always right. Because after he reached a certain age and the crown sat on his head, everyone told him he was always right. You don't do your children any favors. We don't do each other any favors by coddling each other in our sins. Uh, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And true, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So we need to be willing to wound and be wounded in a loving, tender way to help each other not have this same blindness displayed in these characters. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So we see in these characters a spirit of pride and rage that is the opposite of what God calls us to. We also see a, a, a spirit of unforgiveness, and these are not entirely distinct. They're certainly related. We see a, a spirit of unforgiveness in the way that um, Ahasuerus treated Vashti the queen. We see a spirit of unforgiveness in the way that Haman reacted to Mordecai and it became his obsession 
to destroy him and everything connected with him. And I want to point us to Matthew chapter 18 as a a gospel view of what a right spirit looks like. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21 and going really through almost the end of the chapter, at least through verse 28. And we see there, I'm sorry, verse 34, yeah, the end of the chapter. We see here uh, after Peter's, you know, um, question, which was probably asked in a spirit of, of spiritual devotion. You know, Lord, we should be forgiving. Should we even like go as far as doing it seven times? And Jesus, of course, surprises him and us with the answer. I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. In other words, an essentially bottomless reservoir of a generosity of spirit that is willing to absorb harms from others and overlook them in their interest. Because you care about the person who wronged you, you care more about their well-being than the harm they did to you. Now that's not to say that there's no reconciliation, no restitution, no proper uh, mediation of uh, ongoing hurts and wrongs that need to be corrected. But it really speaks again to my own spirit, your own heart. How do you feel about that brother? that sister that wronged you, that slighted you, that embarrassed you, that upset you. If your feelings are still of the same sort of bitterness that is somewhere on the scale, maybe not at the top of the scale like Haman's was, but somewhere on that scale of bitterness that you could just snap at a moment's notice or if you could have the opportunity to wrong that other person in return, you would do it if nobody caught you. Or maybe more like good Christian people that you are, just the kind of bitterness that when you hear that something bad has happened to them, you sort of smile inside. And your wife looks at you and says, why is the corner of your mouth turned up? And you say, no reason. That kind of bitterness where we, where we harbor resentment against another person is contrary to the spirit of the gospel. He says that just as he forgave us, in fact, he instructs us in the Lord's model prayer, Matthew 6, that we are to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Which is, let me just proclaim, a self-condemning prayer. We are begging God to bring judgment on our heads when we pray that prayer without actually having a forgiving spirit. Because we're not saying, Lord, help me to forgive like you've forgiven me, which is a gospel tenet. But we're saying in that prayer, Lord, forgive me in the same way that I forgive others. We love him because he first loved us. We have the capacity to forgive others in a right spirit because he first forgave us. Let's not get the cause and effect confused. We're not saying God owes us forgiveness because we have such a generous spirit. But we are saying that there is an ongoing work of grace in the lives of the hearts of God's children such that his forgiveness prompts us to forgive others to the extent that when we are walking in his footsteps, we could sincerely pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and it not be an invocation of damnation. This uh, parable in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 18 is the one where there's a debt of 10,000 talents owed to a certain king by one of his servants. And the 10,000 talents, I did the math on this one time, I don't have the figures in front of me now, but it's an astronomical sum. Millions, maybe billions, just an astronomical sum. 
And the poor servant, or wretched servant, how in the world he got himself in this fix, I don't know. But he, he, he owed such a vast debt that he, he, and he had nothing to pay. And his Lord commanded them to be essentially sold into servitude, to be bond servants so that the profit of their labor would be a very slight, gradual, and ultimately insufficient repayment of this debt. To sell him, his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Verse 26 says, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him. Now this word worship uh, today means singing, usually in a peppy way. In the Bible, the word worship means falling down on your face. So I'm not saying you can't sing in a peppy way and truly be worshipping. But I am saying a true spirit of worship is not about how much you jump up and down or how lively the song is. A true spirit of worship is how prostrated your heart is. And sometimes it behooves us to actually get down on our knees or sometimes even down on our faces before Almighty God in the true spirit of worship. So he's not, this is not a, a picture of idolatry here. He's talking about a, a servant who is in such dire straits that he literally falls on his face before this king saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. It was an empty promise, undoubtedly sincere. He would do whatever he possibly could to repay this debt. But the reality was there was nothing he could possibly do to repay this debt. And verse 27 says, The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. This is not a hundred of the little copper, they used to be copper, pennies jangling around in your pocket. The coins you don't even bother to keep up with anymore because they're of no use when you go to the store. This is not the kind of pence he's talking about. A Roman penny in the days of the New Testament was a, a fair day's wages, a laboring man's wages. So 30 pennies or 20 pennies, if you're working a five-day week, would be a, a full month's wages. So when he owes a hundred pence, it's, it's almost a half year's salary. This is a substantial sum. This is the kind of money that if somebody doesn't repay you, you notice it and you miss it. So, I'm not, so the, the, the illustration here is not a vast debt and a meaningless debt. The illustration is an infinite debt and a real debt that hurts. That is much smaller, certainly in proportion, but is still a real debt. And so this servant, having just been in the circumstance of having nothing to repay, perhaps was thinking, why did I have nothing to even make my payment on that great debt? And he remembers that his fellow servant owes him a debt that if only he had paid, maybe he could have at least paid the interest on his 10,000 talent debt and, and kept the wolf at bay for a little bit longer. So in a fit of righteous indignation, isn't it always, he goes to his fellow servant, grabs him by the neck, uh, took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. You don't even know how what a crazy day I've had today. I almost got sold into slavery because you didn't pay me your debt on time so I couldn't make the payment on my debt in time. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The exact same plea that the first servant had made to the king. But it doesn't connect in his mind. He doesn't realize the irony of the situation he, he, he simply sees a just claim that he has. I, I highly recommend the Ken Sandy uh, series of books called The Peacemaker. It is a wonderful curriculum and, and, and structure for how to think about forgiveness and reconciliation. And one of the points that the author makes in that, in that book and series of materials 
is that we're not, when you're talking about forgiving someone, you're not talking about, oh, don't worry, it was not a big deal. That's not forgiveness. That's just overlooking something. And you're probably right, it wasn't a big deal, and you probably did make too much of it, and you should say, oh, never mind, it's not a big deal. When we're talking about real forgiveness, we're talking about real debt, real, a real claim of justice. This second service, second servant was at law legally entitled to be paid that debt of 100 days wages, 100 pence from the second service. He had a legitimate claim. If he came and talked to any of us about it, we would say, yeah, well, of course he owes you the money. What have you done to try to work it out? We need to go and try to intervene and, and mediate this for you. It's a real debt. And when we talk about forgiveness, what we're talking about is taking a real hurt that someone has done against you, a real wrong that you have suffered, a real debt that you are owed, and letting it go. Just saying, you know what? I'm not going to lay claim on this any longer. That's a tall order. Forgiveness is more than empty words. There was a, a, a man at our church generations ago, long before I was there, but I heard about it when I, when I moved to Chattanooga. There was a man who borrowed a substantial sum. I don't know, let's say $1,000, $2,000, which was real money back then. He borrowed it from another brother in the church for some urgent need. The brother joyfully lent him the money. And the borrower brother was of such a character that being a proud man, you think you can only be rich and proud. There's a lot of proud poor people out there too. He was of such a character that he, being in a position where he didn't feel like he could pay the debt back, refused to acknowledge it, refused to apologize, refused to try to work out any kind of arrangement. And what he did instead was simply ignore the matter. And this went on for months and months. And someone else in the church somehow learned about this circumstance and went to the lender brother and said, how can you sit in church with this man every Sunday knowing he owes you $1,000 and he won't even talk to you about it and he's never going to repay you? And the lender brother said, I've learned that if he can live with that, I can live without that. I'm, I care more about, in other words, my brother and more about heartfelt service in the kingdom of God than, than I do about getting my rights vindicated. This is the spirit of forgiveness that this servant in this parable lacked. He caught him by the throat. He saw him at his feet begging in the very same words he had just used a short time before, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their, unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And here's the lesson. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. If ye, from your hearts, forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So this is indeed a tall order and a serious matter. And while on a human level we can certainly understand, we can relate to, many of us actually have this in our hearts. And for you good sisters who don't, 
you have been around enough of us that you know how to recognize this, that many of us have in our hearts this spirit of entitlement, of self-justifying ourselves in our attitudes, our anger, our bitterness, our vengeful spirit. It is entirely relatable. Yes, Haman is an extreme case, but the emotions Haman felt toward Mordecai are not something from another planet. They are instead something from this fallen world. There's something with which we are all too familiar, embarrassingly familiar. I want to look at another, uh, in the next, on the next page in Matthew chapter 20, another attribute where uh, Haman in particular, certainly Ahasuerus as king, but Haman as well had a, a, a deep spirit of entitlement that not only led to unforgiveness, but led to this sense of deserving the service of others. Others owe me, or others should serve me, because after all, I do this, or I've, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've accomplished this, or I have this status. I'm a pastor in a church. I'm a deacon in a church. Surely someone should be serving me. One of the, the favorite pieces of counsel I, I give to folks who are suffering from loneliness and discouragement and wondering why people aren't reaching out to them is to encourage them to reach out to others. Uh, even in James, when he's talking about the, the prayer of the elders over the sick, he says, let them call for the elders of the church. Don't expect that your pastor always knows when you need the service of the spiritual service of his counsel and guidance and prayers over your, your uh, adversity that you're going through. Reach out to them. It's your job. It's every one of your jobs and my job to reach out to each other. And it's never our job to complain about how no one has reached out to us. And the Lord, the Lord sets for us a beautiful example of this in this familiar passage in Matthew chapter 20. It's in the context of James and John, bless their hearts, good, good, fine young men, but they had a feisty mama. And their feisty mama, the mother of Zebedee's children in Matthew 20, verse 20, comes with her sons, sort of picture them, her dragging them along, and maybe they said, Mom, please don't, not now, this is embarrassing. And she's like, no, no, you boys, you are good boys, and we're going to go talk to the master about this. And so she drags her sons along with her, worshiping him, Jesus, and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Which she thought was an eminently reasonable request. She didn't ask for Jesus to get out of his throne and let them have it. She just asked for Jesus to let them sit in the most prominent secondary place in his kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They, so now the boys are involved, they say unto him, We are able. I think they knew that was the right answer. I'm not sure they entirely knew what they were talking about. What is this cup you're going to drink of, Lord? What is this bab? We already did John's baptism. What are we talking about? And he saith unto them, right answer, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. 
course, he was talking about the drink, the cup of his sufferings, the baptism of the passion leading up to his crucifixion, the baptism of death itself. And he was right. They would suffer that. So we've got James and John's mother, who's you know, not the most, uh, doesn't come out the most, in the most favorable light in this story. We've got James and John, who don't come out much better. You know, they're hanging on to mama's uh, skirt tails and, and piping up at all the wrong times. But then we've got ten other disciples who surely they're better than these guys, right? No. When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Now, why would you be mad about them wanting the top two spots unless you thought maybe there's a chance I'm going to get one of the top two spots? So this wasn't a James and John problem. It wasn't even their mother's problem. This is a human problem. This problem of entitlement, this problem of thinking folks owe me or kind of ought to do it for me, which ought, by the way, comes from the word owe. When you say you ought to do something, you're saying you owe it to do that thing. It's a word of debt, of obligation, indebtedness. So uh, when you feel like the whole world owes you, that the man has wronged you, that the world's all against you, and you know why hasn't the world ro- rolled out a red carpet for you to strut down just yet, you are of this same spirit. And Jesus called unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. There is a biblical principle of authority. There are biblical authority structures that honor God. But much of what passes for authority in the world today is utterly misaligned with the principles of godly authority. He said, in the world, the Gentiles, the nations, the world all around us, people you know, the people, the, the, all the folks you interact with, he said, you know what authority looks like out there. It's people being powerful and making people do what they want them to do. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, which doesn't mean ordain him to preach. That's not what minister means in the Bible. Minister means servant like an administrator, like a chamberlain back in the king's palace in Esther. Let him be a servant. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. The way up in God's kingdom is down. The way to attain greater heights is to be down on your knees or down on your face or down at your brother's feet as Jesus is in John 13, washing his disciples feet and we honor that uh, example that he gives us in john 13 by literally washing each other's feet uh, on a regular basis in our churches you know it's not just a figure and a symbol i in my early days uh, before my ordination into gospel ministry one of my fathers in the ministry i traveled with and and, and went accompanied him on his pastoral rounds i was sharing with the the brother and sister at, our, at their house the thompsons uh, this morning or last night that I went with him into a hospital room where an old World War II veteran was sitting there in the most pitiful condition, hooked up to oxygen 24 hours a day, uh, suffering uh, pain and discomfort, and, and you know he was old and infirm, and, and his feet and legs were swollen up, something horrible. And, and, and his pastor got down on the cold hospital floor, took a bottle of lotion, and rubbed and massaged that lotion into his feet and legs just like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. The true picture of greatness is 
a servant. And here's the greatest picture of all, the last verse of Jesus' comments in this section. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If anyone in the history of the universe was ever entitled to have a red carpet rolled out for him, it was when God came to earth in the form of a man. But he was born in a stable. The only red carpet he ever had rolled out for him was the palm fronds that children tossed in his path while all the adults in Jerusalem whispered and gossiped to each other. He said, I didn't come expecting a red carpet. I didn't come so that you could serve me. I came so that I could serve you. And as he said again in John 13, if I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought, you also owe it to wash one another's feet. But here's the amazing thing. Brother Brady, Brother Marvin, you're up here in the front post, Rose, I'll pick on you today. Brother Marvin owes it to the Lord to wash my feet. But you know who he doesn't owe it to? He doesn't owe it to me. He owes it to the Lord. So I have no claim against him. I can't say, why hasn't Brother Martin served me recently? Marvin served me recently. Um, and I owe the same thing to Brother Marvin. But he, but he has no legitimate basis in his mind to say, why hasn't Brother Andrew served me recently? Because again, this is an obligation we owe directly to God. And God says the way you fulfill this obligation is by doing it unto one of these least of my children. By going and carrying that cup of cold water, by going and visiting Matthew 25, the prisoner, by going and providing clothing to the naked, by doing these acts of service, you're doing them to each other, but you're doing it to me. You're doing it because you owe this to me, because I have given so much more than this unto you. I've forgiven you the debt of 10,000 talents, and now it's to you, on you, to recognize that these real debts, these real discomforts and inconveniences that are not slight, they are painful, but you're to forgive, you're to serve in the face of those realities in view of the much greater reality of God's great generosity of spirit. So Haman and Ahasuerus had a spirit of unforgiveness, a spirit of pride that even led to rage, a spirit of entitlement to being served, and we see that in each of these cases, the right way is exactly the opposite. Now I want to turn to Luke 18. <clears throat> and I want to talk about a famous part of the book of Esther that I alluded to briefly last night. The extending of the scepter. One of the great things about getting to listen to a preacher who has been in the ministry for a couple of decades is um, you give him the opportunity to correct some of his mistakes and you get the opportunity to, uh, to, 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 to learn from that. So I'm going to tell you that I heard preached, and I even preached myself. I didn't preach on the book of Esther all the time, but when I did, I made sure to mention the extending of the golden scepter. And I mentioned it as an example, an illustration of God's generous forgiveness about how we don't deserve to stand in the presence of a thrice holy God, and he would, would extend this scepter of mercy and grace. You've probably heard that preached yourself. Sorry, brethren, you may have preached it yourself. But um, I'm going to say to you that that is still a valid illustration in my mind. But it's valid in the sense of this story in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, starting at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. This was a judge who had no 
piety about him and didn't care about anybody around him. He wasn't, you know, the people pleasers are, are, are scary folks like Haman. But, you know, maybe sometimes even more scary are the people who just don't care about anybody but themselves. He's in a position, he's got his station, he's got his tenure, he's got his pension. This judge has a job to do, and he's just going to do his job, put in the minimum effort, and go home every day because he doesn't care at all about honoring God or taking care of his fellow man. Well, in the same city, there was a widow, verse 3 says, and she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. Somebody had taken advantage of this poor widow. It was probably one of those telemarketers who calls all the time and, and you know, says, we've got this great opportunity for you or, or hey, you know, I, I, I'm pretending like I know you and your grandchildren are in need. Send me some money. She got scammed. Somebody ripped this woman off. And she says, I need help. I can't buy my medicine this month. She comes to the judge and she says, avenge me of my adversary. And he would not. You know, she's a nobody. She doesn't. There are more important cases on his docket. There are, you know, cases between you know, two businesses that are having a dispute over a contract or something really interesting. And he's going to spend his time, you know, on the real criminals and the real cases in front of him. And this poor widow, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. Wait in line. He keeps pushing her away. He would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I fear not God nor regard man, at least this was a self-aware judge. Uh, he, he even acknowledged and admitted, I don't fear God or care about people. Yet, because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she, she weary me. She won't leave me alone. She keeps coming, showing up in my courthouse every day. She waits till all the other cases are over. Every time we're about to take a break, she says, my turn. And I say, no, go away. But she comes back the next day again. The only way I'm ever going to get rid of this woman is to finally give her her five minutes in court. So the unjust judge, and that's what Jesus calls him, the unjust judge does the right thing because he just gets impatient with this woman continually coming to him. And when I used to read this parable, I was so perplexed. I was like, God, why in the world did you choose a wretched judge like this to be the symbol of yourself in this story? Because verse 7, Jesus says that God answers the prayers of his children. Verse 7 and 8 just like this unjust judge finally answered the prayer of this importunate widow. But the point of the lesson is not that God is an unjust judge or that God is anything like an unjust judge. The point of the lesson is that if even an unjust judge finally gets to his breaking point and does the right thing, how much more will a just judge, a good God, hear the prayers of his children? It is a comparison by contrast. He's saying, I'm so much different than this unjust judge that even though you can imagine this scenario, it's much easier to understand that when you walk into the throne room of God, you don't have to be terrified like Esther. You can walk into the throne of God as the hymn writer said, Lo, at thy feet I'll cast me down to thee reveal my guilt and fear. And if I perish from thy throne... I'll be the first that perished there. Never a penitent sinner has been rejected from the throne of mercy. The scepter is always extended. John chapter 6 verse 37 says that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. There is no such thing as a penitent sinner bowing before God, coming before God, and God not receiving that child in the same way that the father received the prodigal son 
when he ran to meet him. Let's finish this parable here. Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect? He chose them. Why would he ignore the ones he chose? Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? He will bear long, because God has purposes that are as far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. We, sometimes Rhonda and I, love, we're, just, we're driving down the road and we'll talk about some circumstance. And we'll say, you know, what if, what, if, what if we hadn't got slowed down in traffic back there? What if we hadn't made that wrong turn? What if this circumstance in one of our children's lives or, or, or our friends or our church family, what if that hadn't happened that way? It seemed like such an inconvenience. It seemed like such a, such a mix-up, such a problem. But, you know, God was doing at that very instant hundreds of things, thousands of things, millions of things. And somehow... Our God, who doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past, wove the the little trials and tribulations of our life right into the fabric of his everlasting purposes. And we can rest in the arms of a just and a merciful God. Yes, cry long to me. Yes, keep coming to me with your burden, your petition. God delights to hear the prayers of his children and invites us to bring them to him. But when he bears long with you, don't give up praying. My father is a prime example of this. My father died at age 60 back in 2007 in Cincinnati. I would have, there have been many times since then. I've wished I could have had one more conversation with him. Uh, but God, in his timing, took him at just the right time. After decades of people pouring out their hearts in prayer for my mother, for us three little boys, with jeans that were too short for us and tennis shoes with holes in the soles, and holes in our knees before that became a cool thing. And, uh, and they'd say, Lord, please work on David. I don't know, why, why can't he hold a job more than a few months? Why can't he, you know, straighten out and, 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 and just be a stable presence in his family? And I tell you, if you talk to my mother today, she would say those last years, years of their life together were the sweetest time of her entire life. And a year after he was gone, somebody said, how are you doing? And she said, I still cry a little every day. But she said, I smile more than I cry. And that's the story of the life of God's children. There will be tears every day. In this world, you shall have tribulations. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. So he's going to bear long. But he did answer those prayers. And you may not always see the answer to the prayers. And it may not always be exactly the answer that you recommended to God. But whose advice do you trust most, yours or God's? In the end, we need to follow the example of our Lord himself and that nevertheless principle in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Let this cup pass from me. If it be thy will, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when we bow before God, yes, pray boldly, pray, pray bigly, pray for, you know, huge things that seem impossible, but also pray with humble submission to the perfect wisdom, timing, and will of God. Shall not God avenge his own chosen people, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. It seems like forever to you and me. But to God, a thousand years is just like a day. And in God's perfect timing, he brings just the right answer, just the right deliverance. He will avenge them speedily. So this spirit of fear with which Esther, this trepidation with which she had to walk into Ahasuerus' throne room, is a picture of how we approach the throne of God, but not an exact parallel. 
In fact, in some ways, the exact opposite. We walk into the presence of a God, into the throne room of God, where Jesus has made the way open so that we have boldness and access, Ephesians says, with confidence by the faith of him, by the faith of me, by the faith of him, by Jesus's faithfulness, by his perfect communion with his father, by his robes of righteousness, which he places over my shoulders so undeservedly. I am able to walk into the throne room of God, not cowering in terror, but trembling in joyful anticipation. There's a fear there, but it's a different sort of fear altogether. I'm sure Brother Brady's been preaching to you some about that fear. I'm not going to go off on that rabbit trail. I've got about 12 sermons in mind I want to preach on that based on the the stimulation that he, he provided to me in that area. Praise the Lord and thank his Holy Spirit. I want to look at another area, Luke chapter 18, and I want to talk about self-righteousness. We're actually in Luke 18, sorry. Um, I want to talk about self-righteousness. Now, when I have had occasion to reflect on my own shortcomings and failures, one of the things I was sure I was not guilty of was self-righteousness. Okay, some of you knew me. Um, uh, I, I, was, I was blind to this looming large sin in my life. Because in my mind, I had a very rigid theological definition of self-righteousness. I thought self-righteousness means you think you deserve God's favor. I knew I didn't deserve God's favor. Or you think that you have a, a set of rules, a checklist, that if you check all the boxes then you've done everything right, and as long as you're better than average, then it'll all turn out fine for you. Those are two uh, prominent flavors of self-righteousness that are out there and are common to human nature. But I knew I was a wretch. I knew I didn't deserve God's favor, and I knew I wasn't going to earn his favor in any way. But in a marriage counseling session one time, I was asked, Brother Andrew, do you think you're always right? I didn't even have to hesitate. I said, of course, I think I'm always right. Because I always want to be right, and as soon as I realize I'm not, I change my mind. So, of course, I'm always thinking I'm right, because if I didn't, I would be caught in this position of wanting to be right, but knowing I'm not. It made perfect sense to me. Well, let's look at another fellow who thought he was always right. It starts in the very next verse. Luke 18, verse 9, he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were right. Righteous. It's the same word. Right. Righteous. Righteous means doing the right thing all the time. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And consequently, if you're right, what does that mean everybody else is? Yeah. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and consequently they despised others. This hits way close to home for me, brethren. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a despised publican. The other a man that was a traitor to his country, a traitor to his people. And worse than that, he betrayed them for money. For status. That's what it meant to be a publican in this day. You were a turncoat. 
You'd gone to work for the Romans because they said, we don't know where the money is in this town, but I bet you do. And so they hired him, put him on commission, which is worse. Can you imagine the IRS as bad as it is if the agents worked on commission? So, so here this publican works on commission. He takes whatever he needs to send to Rome. The rest of it he gets to keep for himself. Nobody likes him. So even though the Pharisee despises this guy, we kind of all despise this publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Have you ever prayed with yourself? You're supposed to pray with God. But the Pharisee is really just talking to himself. His prayers really aren't really going up much higher than the 30-foot tall ceiling of that temple. The Pharisee prayed with himself. And he stood. And he said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as that guy over there, this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And while he's praying this very self-centered prayer with himself, the publican standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve to be here, God. You've welcomed me into your throne room, into this temple, with open arms. You've extended the scepter of mercy toward me. But I know I don't deserve to be here. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. If you, my dear brothers and sisters, ever find yourself struggling with how to grapple with the notion that you want to be right, which is a good thing, but how to keep that good motivation and desire distinct from the idea that you are there, that you are right. Remind yourself of a time you've changed your mind. Look back at your old self who was so sure that they were right and ask yourself, what would I tell myself if I could go back and talk to myself today? Knowing what I know now, knowing with my, what I believe is greater light and understanding on this issue that I've disagreed with myself over to the extent that I've changed my mind. If I went back to talk to myself, you know, there was a, a preacher one time said, you know, it's, it's, Preachers will put hours and hours, weeks of study into something and, and pour over it, sometimes for months or years until they come to a, what they believe is a satisfying understanding of some point of difficulty for them in God's word. And then they get up and preach it two Sundays in a row and they can't understand why everybody doesn't get it. You know, it's kind of that way if we look back at, if I look back at old Andrew and realize one day from now, I'm going to be looking back at old Andrew today. And, and, I, and I was going to talk to me what would I say to myself, realizing now that I was wrong about something back then? I hope I'd be gentle with myself, but I hope I'd also be really clear with myself and say, just because you think you're right doesn't mean you actually are. And so you need to have this spirit of continual self-examination. Believe your beliefs. Doubt your doubts. That's a good rule of thumb. There are people who are always consumed with doubt because everything they believe, they're not sure today if it's true again. You know, believe your beliefs. Doubt your doubts. But even the things you hold dearest, that you hold firmly, always be like that old preacher who, who could barely see, 
couldn't even get in the stand to, didn't have the vocal strength to deliver a message. But uh, another preacher came by to pick him up one Sunday to take him to church. And he went into his kitchen and he saw him there on his little formica table, pouring over the scriptures, looking at it. And he says, brother, you've been reading and preaching the word of God your entire life. Why do you have to read it again this Sunday morning? You're not even going to preach. He said, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure. The Bereans, the noble Bereans, received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. I need to be constantly bringing my heart, my convictions, my mind into submission to the mind of God. I need to bring them before the mirror of God's word that will transform me from glory to glory to be more like Jesus. If you say, I'm so right, I have no more need of change, then I feel very sad for you. Because we shall all be changed. I know that's talking about the bodily resurrection. But God is in the change business. He doesn't change. But boy does he change us. I'm a work in progress. And I hope you are too. So this spirit of self-righteousness is very evident. in, of course Haman. But let's look at Ahasuerus. The, the Persian decree, the law of the land that could not be altered. It seems like a great idea to not have the laws constantly changing this way and that way. But the notion that one day we finally got it figured out and we're going to lay down this law and it's never going to change again is actually a pretty scary thought. Because you're going to realize later on there's some, some circumstance that we didn't contemplate when we wrote that law. Where there's some, some future development that we didn't even have in mind when we wrote the law. But now the law is binding and we, we have less flexibility to address the situation properly in the future. So you have the arbitrariness of this, of this, uh, this permanent diktat from the Persian throne as an institution. And you also have the personal arbitrary character of Ahasuerus, which demonstrates a slightly different flavor of the very same problem of self-righteousness. When, when the king flew into a rage at Vashti, it was, we're going to do this. And they did it, and they did it irrevocably, and they did it destructively, and they did it recklessly, and they harmed the entire empire, not to even say his own household. When, they, when, they, when he issued the edict to kill all the Jews, he had no idea who the Jews were. Why would he issue an edict like that? But in arbitrary whimsy, he just said, okay, this is the way it is. And dads, moms, I know you've got the discretion as the parental authority in your home to decide this is taco night and this is macaroni night. But when you say, this is taco night, maybe it's time to mix it up a little bit. Maybe it's time to realize, you know what, I am, I, I am beginning to impose my arbitrary preferences as if they are the law of righteousness. And I would give this additional advice, scriptural counsel, to parents of children, especially young children. Yes, you need to have your family standards. I remember a minister years ago said, if you don't set your standards for your family, don't worry, the world will. The question is not, do you have standards in your home? The question is, who's setting them? And you have a role and you're accountable to God for those setting those standards in your household. But please be very clear in your own mind and with your children. This is God's standard. Here's what God's word says. This is what we must do. And here is how we are going to try to go about doing that. An example. People speculate in the Garden of Eden um, about exactly the conversations that transpired between Adam and Eve before 
the forbidden fruit was partaken. But, you know, God told Adam, don't eat the fruit. And Eve tells the serpent that God told us, don't touch the fruit. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with a parent saying, God said, don't eat the fruit. So we're going to build the fence back here. So we don't even get close enough to touch the fruit, much less eat the fruit. I think that's okay. But you know what's not okay? To build the fence back here and say, this is God's fence. God set this rule up. That's not God's rule. And what does God say to prophets who go and say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not spoken? It is a word of severe condemnation. Do not be guilty of putting words in God's mouth that he didn't put there. Take that matter very seriously and respect God's word with absolute reverence. And then build your household standards. And it's okay if the standards in Brother Marvin's house are slightly different from the standards in my house. And it's okay. I can explain to my kids, well, when you go to Brother Marvin's house, they might let you watch a movie that we don't, we're not allowed to watch. And, you know, just go and do what they're allowed to do in their family. It's probably the other way around, Marvin. But, uh, you know, that, that, uh, the standards are going to differ slightly from household to household. Navigate that. But love and respect each other and be clear with your children so that one day they don't grow up and look at your rules where you are so sure you were right. And they look at the Bible and they realize, I can't believe Dad told me that. That's not what God's Word says at all. And they reject the entire thing. Because you have lied to them unintentionally, well-intentionedly. You've lied to them and told them that your word was God's word. England had a saying after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. They actually imprinted coins with the insignia, the will of England is the will of God. Now, I think God's hand was evident in the destruction of the Spanish Armada. It was a victory on the scale almost of biblical proportions of Gideon's 300 against you know, the tens of thousands of Assyrians. But, or the, but, but even though I certainly see God's hand of providence in that, it's not that what England decides is right drives the hand of God. You could use that phrase in a different way and it would be true. If you say, the will of this household is the will of God, and here's the sense in which you mean it. The will of this household is to do whatever God's will actually is. That would be true. That would be valid. That would be a noble aspiration. That would be like the proclamation Joshua made as they prepared to enter Canaan's land. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's our standard. And along the way, we will make mistakes in getting there, but we're going to do the best we can. Now, let's, let's recap. We have looked at a pagan king and judge and husband, and we have seen what a wretched example of all three of these offices he is. But I hope you've noticed in these passages, we've also seen the king of kings, the judge of all the earth, and the husband of an eternally chosen bride. And so when you, like me, look in the book of Esther and you see to an uncomfortable degree too much of yourself in these characters that simply display what man is without grace, then I want you to change your view and look to a king. Let's, we sang last night, Micah 6, 8. We have shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Who's a king that does justly? King Jesus. Who's a judge that loves mercy? Judge Jesus.
Who's a husband who walks humbly? Who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This husband, let's read it. I alluded to it last night, but let's read in Ephesians chapter 5. This husband is the one who loved the church. Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5.25, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He so loved that he gave. That's the picture. That's the illustration. That's the demonstration of what this divine agape love really is. It's not the love that takes. There's another Greek word for that. There's a love that's completely selfish and takes. It's not even in the Bible. There's a love that gives and takes. And that's a perfectly decent kind of love. Philo love, phileo love, like Philadelphia, brotherly love, let brotherly love continue. Nothing wrong with that kind of love. It's the love that, you know, you massage your wife's shoulders for a little while and then she rubs your feet for a little while. That's a nice love. But this is the love, agape love, that just gives, no matter what. And this, husbands, is the love you and I are commanded to have. And not only are we commanded to love unselfishly and to give unhesitatingly and without end, We are given the perfect example of how to do that. That is a tall order indeed. But I don't want you to be intimidated by it. I want you to be inspired by it. Because Jesus, as your husband, husbands, you're part of the bride of Christ, he is still loving you this way today. He loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He's still washing your feet today. With his word. Why is he doing it? That he might present it. His glorious bride. To himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives. As their own bodies. He that loveth his wife. Loveth himself. At the very end he says. Nevertheless. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Everything about our marital relations should be a gospel message. Someone told me Brother Jerry Jr. preached perhaps the greatest sermon of his life in the last months when he wasn't able to stand in this pulpit at all because he preached the wordless sermon of how to be faithful under affliction. Well, you are preaching a sermon in your home. You're preaching to your kids when you think nobody else is watching. They're watching. You're preaching to your spouse. You know there's nothing you can hide from him or her. And you're preaching to the community around you. Let your marriage and your home be one of the brightest gospel witnesses that can shine forth from this church. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity. Just and right is he. He's the king who does justly. He's the judge who loves mercy. And he's the husband who shows us how to walk humbly with our God. God bless you.